Good morning. It's such a joy to see everyone here today. We have uh, visitors among us, and we're thankful that you are here, and uh, we hope that you have already been made to feel completely welcome and uh, that you will come and be with us again whenever you possibly can. In a few minutes, we will be singing the uh, song that you'll find designated in your order of worship, and uh, we refer to this as an invitation song, and that's what it's for. It's to invite you, if you are not yet following Jesus, to make that decision and to come and let that be known and to acknowledge your faith in Christ and to be baptized into him, to have your sins washed away, or uh, if you seek the prayers of the church for some reason, or if you are uh, a member of the body of Christ, but you have not yet identified yourself as a part of this church, then it'd be an opportunity for you to come and do that also. But please uh, think about that invitation. And if you uh, wish to avail yourself of it, don't hesitate to do that when the time comes. There's a terrible story told in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. It tells about one brother, Cain, who was so angry and jealous toward his brother Abel that he killed him. They had both offered sacrifices to the Lord, and the Lord accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. Instead of Cain doing some self-examination and soul-searching and trying to figure out why his sacrifice was not accepted, he took it out in jealousy on his brother, and when they were alone in the field, he rose up and he killed him. I suppose he thought nobody would know because they were alone in the field. But God did know. And he tried to get Cain to confess his sin by asking him a question. Where is Abel, your brother? You remember that earlier in the garden, he had asked that question of their father. Uh, what is it that you have done? And where are you? And why are you hiding? And instead of confessing what he had done, Cain said, he lied and said, I don't know. And then he said, am I my brother's keeper? I want to ask you a question this morning, the very same question. Are you your brother's keeper? Are you the keeper? Are you responsible in some way for the welfare, not just of your physical brother or physical sister, but of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Jesus says in Matthew 18 that you are. He says that we all are. And as we continue thinking about kingdom relationships this morning, I hope you'll have your Bible open and in front of you as we talk about these verses because they're very, very serious. Jesus says that they are. We saw last week in Matthew 18, 1 to 9, that kingdom relationships have to begin with humility. You had that argument amongst the disciples about who was the greatest, and Jesus put the little child in their midst. And he said, the one who becomes like this child is the greatest. He said, in fact, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you turn, unless you repent and become like this child. That complete lack of status seeking for ourselves and that concern about the welfare of others. He talked about receiving all of those little ones who belong to me. And above all, not causing them to sin. And he said, if you do cause one of them to sin, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea. I don't know what's worse than that, what that looks like. But Jesus said it would be better to have that experience. 
He talked about receiving the little ones and not treating them as if they don't count because that's what sometimes pushes them into sin. That's what sometimes pushes people to abandon the kingdom. That's what sometimes causes people to just stop trying to follow the Lord. If they find out they are not received, they find out they are not welcomed, they find out that they are not acknowledged, they are not valued by other believers. In verses 10 to 14, Jesus reinforces that teaching with one of his best-known parables about a man who has a hundred sheep, but he loses one of them. And notice the repetition of the word one throughout that parable. He loses just one, but what does he do? He leaves the others in safety, and he goes after that one until he finds that one. And then he brings the one back, and he rejoices that he has found it. He does not give up until he finds the one that was lost, and then he rejoices over that which was lost but is now found. And Jesus said, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's talking about the little ones who believe in him, all of us. It's not God's will for any one of us to perish. And the parable illustrates that so vividly. And if it isn't God's will for one to perish, it can't be our will. If God is like that shepherd who goes seeking the sheep until he finds it, That's what we're supposed to imitate. That's what our kingdom relationships are to be like. That we are to so value one another, even just one, that we do not allow each other to wander off without seeking to be regained. I think the best way to see the connection between that parable and the words that follow it, because he goes right out of that parable into verses 15 to 18. And I think one of the best ways to see the connection between the parable and what follows it is to insert in your mind, I'm not suggesting you write this in your Bible, but in your mind to think of the word so. He tells the parable about the lost sheep and the shepherd who goes and finds it. And then he says, so if your brother sins, what do you do? What do you do? If your brother sins, you have to have the same care for your brother or for your sister that God has for those little ones who believe in him, even even if he has sinned against you, against you. This gets personal, doesn't it? If he sinned against you, you have to have that concern and that care. We cannot just write that person off as if they no longer matter. We tend to do that in a lot of our relationships. People sin against us, and we just write them off. I'm not going to bother anymore. I'm not going to care anymore. I'm not going to value that relationship anymore. Jesus says we can't do that. And rather, he tells us what specific actions we are to take. There are a lot of teachings of Jesus that we find hard to live up to. Matthew 18, 15 to 18, contains one that usually we just ignore. It's not that we find it hard to live up to. We usually just don't try. We just ignore the teaching. What did Jesus say to do? He said, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. First and foremost, what this teaching is about is about gaining 
your brother. That's what this is all about. It's about gaining that which was lost. It is about regaining that relationship that we have in the body of Christ with one another. It isn't about punishing somebody. It's not about getting even with somebody. It's not about getting rid of somebody. It's about gaining somebody where there's a severing of the relationship. It's about bringing them back into the fold. And let me tell you, if somebody sins against us and our goal isn't to regain them, then there's something wrong within us. There's something wrong with our attitude. There's something wrong with our spirit. If someone sins against us and we do not desire to regain them, there's something wrong, and we have to recognize that. And we need to confess it, and we need to do something about it. Jesus says if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why? Why does this have to be done one-on-one? Why does it have to be done alone? Well, there are a lot of reasons that we can think of. One is you might find out in going to that person that, what you thought they did was not what they did. You might find out that you were wrong. You might find out that you were misinformed. You might find out that you misunderstood. And you might find out that something had been misrepresented to you. You might find out that your brother or sister isn't even aware of their sin. And so you don't want, to, you don't want an audience for that. You just want to go to them alone. Another reason is since your goal is to gain your brother you want to keep his or her sin as quiet as possible to make repentance as easy as possible. You want to keep it as quiet as possible to make repentance as easy as possible as you try to resolve it. It isn't about raising a following. It's not about proving yourself right. It's about regaining. And so you go alone. Another reason is if your brother or sister has sinned, you don't want to embarrass them. That'll just make repentance more difficult. And repentance is the goal. Gaining your brother is the goal. And you don't want to put, build barriers to regaining your brother. But going alone is not what we usually do, is it? And, and we're all guilty of this, okay? Let's just lay that on the table. We're all guilty of this. Instead of going to the person who has sinned against us, we don't usually go to them at all. But we usually find somebody else to go to maybe a lot of other people to go to, and we talk to them about it. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus said to do. When go, we go around telling other people about some, what someone has done in sinning against us, we're doing the reverse of what Jesus said to do. And when we do that, we're running a serious risk of causing our brother or sister to be humiliated the risk of building hard feelings against them on the part of other people. We run the risk of igniting hard feelings from them against us so that there is a barrier built that cannot be broken down, possibly of even driving them out of the kingdom. And then we've done exactly what Jesus said you'd better not do. We've compelled someone into sin and they're lost to the kingdom. And it would have been better for us to have a millstone tied around our neck and be thrown into the sea. We need to remember the warnings found in the book of Proverbs about the dangers of misusing the tongue. Because that's where this all begins, isn't it? Proverbs 11, verses 12 and 13. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. 
Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps the thing covered. Do you notice what's paired up there? That slandering is, is paired up with revealing secrets. And being trustworthy is paired up with keeping things covered. And our tendency is to want to uncover them before the world. And then there's Proverbs 16, verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. We've all seen it, haven't we? We've all seen it. People can be good friends, but a whisperer, somebody who comes along, let me tell you this. And all of a sudden, a separation occurs. Proverbs 20, uh, 18, verse 8. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Have you ever found yourself knowing something that you knew you shouldn't tell and you just couldn't keep from it? The words of a whisperer are like morsels. Somebody told me this and I just can't wait to tell somebody else. You know, we don't have to wait anymore. We just get on Facebook, don't we? We don't have to wait anymore. We can slander people wholesale. The words of a whisper are like morsels that go down in the inner parts of the body. Proverbs 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the of a tongue, death of a person's relationship, the death of their reputation, the death of a friendship, the death of the unity of the body of Christ. All that lies in the power of the tongue. We'd better listen to that. But suppose you do what Jesus says. You go to that person one-on-one -on -one and they don't respond. Well, you fulfilled your obligation, right? Just forget it. No. That's not what Jesus said. What Jesus said before this means that we don't have that luxury. The parable of the lost sheep says we don't have that luxury because that would be despising one of these little ones. That would be saying, well, that person no longer matters. That person no longer counts. I did what I could do. Now it's over. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, if he does not listen, you don't give up. He says, you take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, these witnesses are not witnesses for the prosecution. All right, you don't get people together to go and, and prove yourself right. See, again, that's the wrong motivation. The motivation is to regain your brother. But you want people there to make sure that what's said is what gets reported. All right, to make sure that things don't get twisted. Usually in situations of conflict, they do, don't they? What one person says is not what another person hears because they're so deeply involved in the conflict. Whereas another person, a third party, may, may be able to have a more objective point of view. That's what that's about, is establishing everything, both what you say and what other people say. This is a, this is a group of two or three. This isn't a posse. You're not getting together a lynching party here. But you're simply getting a couple of people to go and make sure that's what's done and what's said is right and true. And these are not witnesses for the prosecution. They 
are just there to be sure that things aren't misrepresented. And hopefully the intervention of one or two others will cause your brother or your sister to see their error and repent. That's the goal. What if it doesn't happen? What if it doesn't happen? Do we forget about it then? No. Because Jesus says in verse 17, if you will not listen to them, then tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. That's something that's almost never done, telling it to the church. And hopefully the reason it's never done is that people get things resolved before it comes to that point. But if need be, then we need to get the whole church involved in trying to persuade that person about their sin. And if they will not be persuaded, then finally Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Because then you have done everything that you can do. In that case, the person's sinful behavior and their refusal to repent has caused them to remove themselves from fellowship with other believers because they're just insisting on maintaining the sin. They won't do any different. They won't acknowledge it. They won't, they won't turn away from it. And then there's verses 18 through 20. Whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven, Jesus says. And then he says, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You've heard that verse a lot, but you've heard it in the wrong context. Usually we hear those verses, 18 through 20, in the context of worship, don't we? Wherever two or three are gathered together, sometimes we even irreverently make a joke out of it. You know, attendance is small. Well, but Jesus said wherever two or three are gathered together, so he's here in the midst of us anyway. Well, that may be true enough, but that's not what it's about. That's not the context. The context is trying to restore a person who has sinned. The context is trying to regain your brother. And what does it tell us? It tells us that God is with us in that effort because that's a holy activity. That is a holy thing to do, to go to another person and try to get them off the path of sin and to bring them back into relationship with other believers. That's a sacred task. And Jesus said you're not in it by yourself. He says God will be with you in that holy activity bringing that person back he'll be with the whole church well we read this and something in us says that's kind of drastic isn't it <clears throat> all of this business about going directly to a person and talking to them about their sin that that takes a lot of gall and and then telling other people about it and finally telling the whole church that's kind of drastic isn't it not when you realize what's at stake go back to verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones who believe in me. See that you do not cause them to sin. See that you don't look down on them. See that you don't disregard them as having no value. And so it isn't drastic at all. We need to be ready to do whatever it takes to restore that person to fellowship with the rest of the church. But most of all, to their fellowship with God. And still we read that and we think, well, that, that would just take an awful lot of brass, wouldn't it, to, to do something like that? No. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of humility. It takes the humility to care that much about another person that we would go to whatever lengths necessary to restore them. 
It takes the humility to stop ourselves from talking about someone's sins and instead of going directly to them about their sin. It requires the humility to place ourselves in the line of fire in case our efforts aren't appreciated, and they aren't always. Some people will just lash back at us, and, and we're going to feel even worse. It takes humility to put ourselves in that line of fire. It takes the humility to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm seeing something that bothers me. And then being willing to be corrected if, in fact, you are wrong. Verses 10 through 20 are all about humility, just like verses 1 to 9. It's all about being great in God's kingdom. And greatness in God's kingdom comes only through humility, Jesus said. Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? And Jesus said, yes. Yes, you are. Let's stand and sing.